Welcome back to week 12 of Fall Bible Study. You officially made it to the end, and I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, we have this semester looked at a bunch of different minor prophets, and we have seen the theme of God's justice, his righteous justice, and his great mercy. And so we are going to land there today. Um, and today, is a, it's a happy day. It's going to start off kind of not happy, but I promise we're going to end happy. We're going to end the semester happy. Um, so again, I want to say um, I'm thankful for the teaching of Cliff Daniel and David Gilbert, who I do not know, but they are great teachers. They are pastors at Grace Press in Dawsonville, Georgia. And if you, in your time, because we have a lot of time between now and when we start back in the spring, if you want something to do and you'd like a deeper dive into Zephaniah, I would recommend it. It's great teaching. I put the, um, their website up um, if you'd be interested in that. And um, we are going to continue and finish up the book of Zephaniah. So something I didn't say last week, I just stopped abruptly. Um, we didn't finish all of chapter two, and I realized after the fact that I never gave you a heads up. I just kind of made it a decision and did it. Um, but we are going to finish that. So today we're going to start with chapter two, verse four. It is If you're looking at your study guide, that's on page 60. Um, if you're in your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn there. So last week in chapter one, we saw um, the great judgment of God. Uh, uh, Zephaniah coming in loud and shocking and prophesying universal judgment like the flood, getting their attention. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, we saw, like the pattern of the prophets do, we saw a call to repentance. He called them to repent. And where we're going to start today in, in verse 4, the first word is for. So you could read that as because. So Zephaniah has called them to repent because, and we're about to find out his reasons why they should repent. So I, um, I tried to not, I didn't have a, um, I ran out of time last week. This is, that's, let's, let's tell the whole truth. I ran out of time. I didn't do an outline and it completely threw me off. I, um, so it helps me and maybe it helps you all to kind of know where we're going. Um, so we are going to start today with reasons to repent. Verse 4, for Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. Those cities, the four that were listed before that, are all cities in Philistia. So they're Philistine cities. Note that for later. Um, Philistines first, he comes against. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. 
This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. I want to stop here instead of coming back later while we're, while we're looking at um, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, we learn who they are. So we saw the Philistines first, right? And we remember them because of David and Goliath, right? Enemies of God. Um, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So they came about um, right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham and Lot had been, tra- his, Abraham and his nephew Lot had been traveling together. Right? God has promised to make Abraham's family a great nation that's going to bless all of the nations of the world. But he's traveling with his nephew Lot, and they realize that they're too big. Like, there are too many people, there are too many flocks of sheep to all live together. So they separate, and um, Lot takes the better land. Abraham lets Lot choose the better land. Well, um, what happens then a little bit later is um, you have this whole crazy story of Lot and his two daughters. Um, who look up and don't have husbands and make this bizarre plan to get their father drunk and sleep with him and have heirs through incest. So you have uh, the older who the Moabites come from and the younger daughter who the Ammonites come from. So really they're kind of cousins of God's line through Abraham um, but they, they start off badly, and it kind of always goes badly. And when it's talking about them taunting God's people, as God's people were on their way into the promised land, um, they were cruel to them and even hired a false prophet to call out curses on them. So enemies, enemies. Um, okay, let's pick back up in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window, devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else, the pride of Nineveh. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So why should you repent? Well, because there's going to be destruction for everybody who doesn't repent. And God starts by talking about the nations that live around his people. It's like he took out the compass and he was like, well, you've got to the west, you got the Philistines. And to the east, you got the Moabites and the Ammonites. And to the south, you have the Cushites. And to the north, you have your biggest foe, Assyria, saving the best for last. And so he's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is a reason to repent because those who don't repent will be destroyed, rightly so. But then in the midst of all of this judgment, Zephaniah just kind of slips in this whole new concept of the remnant. He says that after the judgment of God passes through, there will be a community left. The remnant are all those repentant people who trust in God alone to save them. Verse 7, he talks about them. I'm going back. 
The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon, for they shall lie down in evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So God had promised through um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, early on he had promised to give his people a certain portion of land. And a lot of that is covered right now by these enemies. And part of this promise is, after you have been judged, because you're, you're still going to be uh, exiled to Babylon, but there will be a day when you will come back. The remnant who are faithful to the Lord, who trust in him alone, will come back, and this land will be for you, and God is going to keep the promise that he made to put you in this land. So, in chapter 2, we've seen this impending destruction of all the neighbors all around him. Or potential restoration as two reasons why God calls them to repent. And you know, it's like he is, um, he's about to move to his people. He's been talking about what's going to happen to the nations around him, but it's like he is imploring them to repent by saying, look what happened to them. It's actually not any different for you because you're my people and you bear my name. If you continue in idolatry and rebellion against me, and don't repent, the exact same thing is going to happen to you. His people are so stubborn. It's kind of like he is showing them all of this in chapter 2, kind of like the, a parenting tactic. I don't know if y'all ever use this parenting <laughs> tactic, um, but the, to the younger child to say, hey, did you see what your older sibling did and how it did not go well for them? I would suggest that you make different choices, right? It's kind of like that. God is saying, look, choose to repent. Come to me. He's calling them. So in chapter 3, um, God moves his um, call directly to his people in Jerusalem, the lineage of Abraham. And it is not pretty. Because remember, in this time, while their king has turn to God, the people largely have not. They are largely still living in a way that either directly rebels against God by serving idols or just ignores him altogether. Verse 3, chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Isn't it miraculous that while they are so evil, he has not left them? He is there. His justice is constant. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. God is desperately desiring his people to repent and to come back to him. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But all the more, 
They were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. The day of the Lord that is coming. And God's people who, although supposedly in relationship with him, defiantly refuse to obey him and worship everything but him. O. Palmer Robertson said, Their privilege has become the occasion for greater sin. How much more sad, how much more devastating that that the people who God has spoken to and taken care of and loved and been faithful to are not faithful to him. He desires repentant hearts. He sends his prophets to call out for his people to come back to him. And verse 7 really is heartbreaking. The Lord God, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. He longs for them to come back to him. And again, O. Palmer Robertson says, Do not entertain any doubts. When you observe the persistent refusal for, what, for Yahweh, his special name with his people, even on the part of those who have Yahweh dwelling in their midst, trust in the fact that the day is near. He never does wrong. He never shall fail. His justice cannot be questioned. Morning by morning it comes to light. On the rightly appointed day, he shall come to testify even against those who bear his name. Zephaniah has proclaimed startling and complete judgment. But he does want us to see the beauty and the reminder that in the midst of all of these rebellious hearts, both not God's people and God's people, there is a remnant. (laughs) There are people who will trust the Lord. And as we move on, we're going to see that God's power and sovereign grace are the only way that it happens. We think it is shocking that people are so evil, but honestly, the shocking thing is that God saves evil people and makes them his. It's miraculous. It really is. So we are moving into see how God creates the remnant. He will do it. Now look, another shock to God's people as we move in and start to read about the remnant is that the remnant, the people who are truly God's people, we would say, um, the remnant are the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The remnant are those who will live forever with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. That's who we're talking about. And it would have been a shock to God's people for them to hear that the remnant was not just the descendants of Abraham. And I mean, good news for us, because most of us in this room, if not all, would not have been included if it was just the descendants of Abraham but that this promise is for people from every tongue and tribe and nation, even from their enemies. You know, we mentioned um, the Moabites and the Ammonites earlier, but do you remember in the book of Ruth? Do you remember where Ruth was from? Ruth was a Moabitess, and her name is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She is his great-great-great-great-grandmother, or four greats. She is in his family line. God brings in even his enemies. All who will repent and follow him are welcome. Uh, We see in uh, Revelation 7, 9, John had a vision. 
and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So let's look back to Zephaniah starting in chapter 3, verse 9. The conversion of the nations. And I want you to pay attention to who's taking the action here as we read it. Verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. It's God over and over and over making it happen. I will change the speech of the nations to a pure speech. I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lonely. Only God can do it. God pursues his people. He is the initiator of relationship with us always. And God makes the first move. He says first that he is going to change their speech to a pure speech. So, of course, this we could look at and say they're no longer going to be worshiping idols with their speech. They're going to be turning towards the Lord and worshiping him with their speech. And that they will, these changed people, the remnant, they will serve God. What we see ultimately here by way of the change of their speech and their serving is that their hearts have been changed. So the words that come out of your mouth and what you do with your hands are evidence of what's happening in your heart. Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a direct correlation. And then Ezekiel 36.24 should be ringing in our ears at this point. From another prophet. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you. And we see in these verses from Zephaniah the things that he takes away from them and the things that he gives them. In the remnant, God's going to remove their shame and their pride and their injustice and their deceit. And when he gives them a new heart, they are going to be characterized by pure speech and humility, and they are going to dwell in peace. So when that is said of you, and God has done this, for you and in you, what should the response be? What is the response 
for the people who are the remnant of God. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Verse 15, what a picture of the gospel. The response is unbridled joy. It is singing and shouting and rejoicing and exulting with all of your heart. This is not something that's just merely like, you know, the weather's going to be good tomorrow. This is life-changing good news. Where are times that we feel that in our lives? I mean, I think about engagements. I remember when Clay asked me to marry him and he was down on one knee. I tackled him. I mean, I think we both ended up on the ground, right? The joy that comes out of you. Um, I think about, oh, the stories you see of uh, men or women who have been away in dangerous places fighting for our country, and they come home. And the response of their families, it is pure and unbridled joy. And y'all, you don't care how dumb you look when you express the joy, right? That is what is being talked about here. Is this the posture of our worship? Is this how we think about the fact that God has saved us? Y'all, I'm not going to lie. This is something that I've started to struggle with as I've gotten older, and I've I'm not, I think there are things that when we all get to heaven, we will learn that we've done some things well and some things poorly, like across all denominations. But I think there is something lacking um, for a lot of us in a lot of different denominations and just how stiff we are. In the, in the presence of the good news, we are, we are, it seems like some emotion might be a good idea sometimes. Um, and the, the older I get, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's the crazier I get, but there are days when I stand in worship and I'm like, I would like to go dance in the aisles right now. I really would. Everybody would think I was crazy. And this past Sunday, as we sang, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness and new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And I found myself being like, you know what? This is why people do this while they sing. I'm not looking to start. I'm not, I, I will probably not start doing that in worship. If you see me, though, just be like, it's fine. <laughs> She's worshiping. But I do wonder. I do wonder if we are so, I don't know what it is, self-aware, self-focused. It's just what we're always used to. But might we respond, and maybe that happens for you in private and not in public, but oh, would the Lord bring us joy when we think of his good news that he has made us his people. So we then look from our joy to the source of that joy, which is God's joy. Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
God through Zephaniah says to his people, look, on that day, we're looking towards to when Jesus comes back again. This is forward for them and forward for us. He says, on that day, it is going to be terrifying for those who are not repentant. But oh, you who are God's people, who are safely trusting in him, it is going to be a glorious day, full of security, full of, of God singing over you. He will rejoice over you with gladness and exult over you with loud singing. God breaking out into singing. God full of joy and delight, all because of you and me. And y'all, I can't seem to get past the detail that God is singing loudly. Like God is not, he is not, you know, he, he is full of joy and overflowing. He is singing loudly. And I, I picture in my mind um, the story of the prodigal son and what that father must have felt like. You know, the son comes home and the father throws a party. And most certainly there was good food and good wine, but most certainly there was music and there was probably dancing. And can you not picture that father who is so delighted in his son being home that he has his guests and his friends and he is singing at the top of his lungs? What a picture that God would sing over us. And so finally, as we wrap up, we see that God gathers his people. He gathers us to take us home. A picture of this joy overflowing God. And this is the third time in these verses that we've seen God call to gather. Uh, one of those times, he, um, let's see, at the beginning of chapter 2, he called his people to gather and repent. In chapter 3, verse 8, he declares that he will pour out indignation on the unrepentant when he gathers them. But here, the call to gather is to save and protect and to restore their fortunes and our fortunes. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. We're going to wrap up here. Um, for a few years, a lot of years ago, goodness, it was before Alice was born and she's 16. So in our late 20s, um, Clay had his midlife crisis, it was a little early for midlife crisis, and thought that maybe he did not want to be a lawyer. And he ended up getting a contractor's license and we built houses for a few years in Jackson. So he did all the stuff you couldn't see and I did all the stuff you could see, all the aesthetic stuff. Um, and it was really fun and really stressful and you know, it was an, an interesting phase of life. But what I remember, from that, in the midst of, of construction on these houses, that the mind, my mind was always towards the end product. Daydreaming about the end product when it's finished and there's gonna be a family living in this home. And so I do wonder if our lives might feel a little bit like a construction project, that during the midst of all of the construction, a lot of times things go really badly wrong. You get a shipment of windows and half of them are cracked. 
or the painter just does not show up and leaves with the payment that you have already paid him, right? Things go badly sometimes in our lives and things are difficult and our life is full of mourning, suffering, oppression, shame, all of these things. But the point is that God is gathering us and that he is gathering us to be at home with him in heaven. And I do wonder if in our lives, it might be something that we would daydream about a little more. Instead of being so focused on the construction project that is now, might we think towards what it will be like to live in that home that is finished and complete? He says he will restore our fortunes there. We will be safe and secure and loved and sang over. He will be in our midst to save us and to sing over us forever. And as we approach Christmas, it is that beautiful time when we acknowledge that Jesus left that beautiful home in heaven to come down, to make a way that all of our judgments might not be held against us because they're put on him. So that one of these days, someday in the future, we will be able to be at home with the Lord in his midst. It really is worth singing and praising and daydreaming about. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call out to us. You draw us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that you do it because, Father, we know our hearts and we would not come except that you draw us. We would continue to wander. So, Lord, I pray that you would put in our hearts, even today, a new spirit of joy and of gratitude that you would turn our eyes to you, that you would turn our eyes to all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.